0: Welcome to the UGABCM podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the UGABCM right on campus in Athens, Georgia. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy. All right, now, with that in mind, Galatians chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 21. uh, You are free. That is what Galatians is all about. Paul has written to the churches in Galatia, if you were here back a couple weeks ago, and we talked about the fact that ultimately that these churches that had these Judaizers that had showed up in the church who basically said, look, for you to be a Christian, you can be a Gentile and be a Christian. However, uh, you can be born a Gentile and be a Christian. Because for you to truly be a Christian, you have to convert to Judaism and you have to follow the law. And the big hang up was for the men in that day, it was circumcision. And uh, I don't think I have to explain to anybody what that is, all right? And uh, if you don't understand what that is at this age... um, Go ask your parents, I guess, is what I'll tell you. I don't know. All right? But anyways, um, that was the issue because that's what every Jewish male had done. And so that was an outward sign to the world of the covenant that God had made with his people. And so ultimately, you had these Gentiles who were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, we read all throughout the book of Acts uh, about how that they, it, their, their salvation was proven uh, because the Holy Spirit had filled them and, and ultimately... Um, that doesn't mean, don't take that and run with it, by the way, uh, and, and take it where some of our friends today might take it and say, you got to speak in tongues and all this kind of crazy stuff for you to prove your salvation. Cause that's not what that means. All right. But in the book of Acts, we find that those Gentiles, something had to prove to the Jews as we see as is the issue here, uh, that they were actually believers. Well, we know that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who comes to dwell within you? Y'all tell me out loud, who comes to dwell within you? The Holy Spirit. Right? And so the proof of that Holy Spirit was evidenced uh, by things that took place outwardly in their lives. And so ultimately, what we find ourselves in is a situation where you had Jews that didn't really fully understand and know if the Gentiles should be receiving the gospel. But you had guys like Peter and Paul and others who had experienced this call on their life to share the gospel with the Gentiles. And so here we find Paul writing to the church at Galatians or the churches at Galatia and telling them listen, you are free. You are free from the law. God has saved you through what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross of Calvary. There is nothing you need to do for your salvation because your righteousness is found only through your faith in him. And so ultimately, what Paul is telling them is this. Quit listening to the garbage that people are telling you about what you need to add to the gospel. And so he introduced that concept in chapter 1. He's going to really begin to unpack that concept in chapter 3 on through the rest of this book. But in chapter 2, he spent some time talking about his testimony, as he did at the end of chapter 1, and about how that, that was proof of their freedom. And so he uses two events here. One event is the Council of Jerusalem, and the other event is where he interacts with Peter, when Peter really honestly had sort of gotten out of line with his ministry. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read all 21 verses, and then I want you to see really three things tonight about really what Paul is doing, which is simply fighting for freedom. So beginning in verse 1 of Galatians chapter 2. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. That's pretty smart of him. Uh, basically what had happened here is he's talking about what we read in Acts chapter 15, which is the council at Jerusalem, or Jerusalem council. And uh, what had taken place is that there had been those who had heard about the fact that these Gentiles were, uh, were receiving the gospel. And so they had begun to question some things. and They had begun to uh, focus on the fact that they also needed to, uh, to follow the law. And so uh, Paul ends up basically getting Barnabas and Titus with him and heads back to Jerusalem. And so that's what he's telling us there uh, in those first two verses. And if you notice, he does it in a, in a pretty clear, smart, clever way. Uh, when he shows up in town, he, does, he doesn't just go to the center of town and just part, start proclaiming to everybody what's taking place. He meets with some of the key leaders privately, right? And so then we find ourselves in verse 3, and he says, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, so he was a Gentile, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in Who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. So, in other words, there were Jews that had showed up and were trying to get these folks to convert back or convert to Judaism and saying that they had to have that to be Christians. And then it says in verse 5 But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, What they were really makes no difference to me, Paul says. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Now we're going to stop there to start with. I said we're reading all 21 verses and we are. We're going to start, stop there to start with. The first example I need you to see of Paul's fight for freedom is ultimately the council at Jerusalem. Now here's the reality in our lives. The reality in our lives is that all of us have probably faced something somewhere in our lives where we had to make a decision of whether we were going to stand and fight for what we believed in. Anybody ever been there before where you had to make a decision on whether or not you were going to stand and fight for what you believed in? I'll never forget one of the first times that happened to me. Uh, It's a good thing my children aren't here because I really would prefer my children not to hear this, particularly uh, since they're in school because I don't want to deal with any emails or phone calls from teachers. But I'll never forget, I was in seventh grade and I was sitting in a history class in seventh grade. And every day in that history class in seventh grade, uh, we had to come in, and uh, the teacher uh, on the board. Put all of these notes on the board, and so we would come in. It was really, honestly, she was a terrible teacher thinking back about it because it's a terrible way to teach. And so we would walk in, and before anything else happened in the class, you had to sit down and literally copy an entire board worth of notes. And then she would stand up and start talking to you, or she'd give you worksheets and all this kind of silly stuff, right? And so one day, we're in the class, and and I'm taking my notes feverishly off the board because I'm trying to hurry up and get done, because in all reality, there was a girl sitting behind me that I kind of thought was cute, and I knew if I finished the notes really fast, then I could start talking to her. I mean, that's the truth of the matter, all right? And so uh, I I did that, and I got all my notes done, and the the classroom was chaos because everybody else was cutting up and cutting a fool. Well, so I finished my notes, and when I finished my notes, I turn around, I start talking to this girl, and so we're... And they're having this conversation, 7th grade, right? As deep as a 7th grade conversation between a guy and a girl can get. You can imagine how great of a conversation that was, right? And needless to say, this teacher had finally heard enough. And she literally, like, steps out from behind her desk at the back of the room where she'd been sitting now for probably 20, 25 minutes as we're feverishly copying notes literally from one side of the board to the other. And she steps up and she begins to scream and yell at all of us about how that we weren't doing anything we were supposed to do and how that because we weren't doing anything we were supposed to do, we had a pop quiz right then and there. Like, great, this is wonderful. Because I had no idea of anything I'd written down. I was just writing it down really fast. You understand what I'm saying, right? And so she proceeded to ask us uh, some questions very quickly. uh, And she made us, she's like, everybody take out a piece of paper. You aren't paying attention to anything. You're not writing anything out. You're not doing your work. Here we go. And so she made us write down on this piece of paper, 1 through 10. And she asked us 10 questions, and we had to answer the questions. And the thing is, is that she had erased the board right before she, like, did the piece of paper. You get what I'm saying? So you couldn't even cheat off the board. And so here's what I did. I decided in that moment, that good old song, right? You got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. That was my moment to stand. In that moment, that was my moment to stand. And as the good Lord is my witness sitting here at the Baptist Collegiate Ministries at the University of Georgia as a 7th grade student. A student that would go on to graduate with honors. A student that would go on to score over 1,400 on an SAT. I was a pretty pretty smart cat, if I'm being honest about it, okay? But in that moment, as a 7th grader, I was an idiot. I was. Because I took my stand. And I'll never forget what I did. I wrote my name on the top of that paper. And then I wrote, 1 through 10... And then beside that one through 10, I wrote, I will not answer any of these. I took my notes, period. What I did. She came through and she took our papers up and she went to the back, and something miraculous happened. We're sitting there all in our seats, and she says, Tommy, I went, Oh Lord. And I literally looked at the girl behind me. I said, I'm in trouble. And I got out of my little desk, my little wooden desk. And I walked back to the back and she said, Tommy, is this yours? Well, my name was on the top of the paper. What do you think? Yes, that's mine. And she goes, Can I see your notes, please? And at this point, I'm like, I got a chance, right? <laughs> and I literally walked back up to my desk. I'm smiling. And I grab my notebook, and I take it back to her, and I set it there, and she looks through, and she starts flipping. And she goes, you actually did this. I said, yes, I actually did this. She said, when I looked up, you were talking. How did you do this? And I said, I finished it as fast as I could, because it's miserable. And she goes, okay, here's your notebook back. She hands the notebook back. She gives us our papers back. And I promise you this is the truth. I got a hundred. I got a hundred. Now, I would not suggest you do that. But in that moment, I decided I was going to stand, right? And here's the thing. The reason I decided I was going to stand is because I knew that I was right. I knew that what I was doing was what I was supposed to have been doing, right? Right? And I decided in that moment, it's just a quiz. I mean, honestly, like what was it really going to affect grade-wise, right? It was a quiz. And and so I decided in that moment, I'm going to take a stand. You're not going to call me out with everybody else that's acting like an idiot in this classroom. And so I did. Why? Because I knew I was right. And I knew that I had the proof of why I was right. Now, I want you to hear me tonight. When Paul goes back to Jerusalem and he says that the gospel had been given to him to give to the Gentiles, He knew he was right. And he knew he had the proof that he was right. Matter of fact, one of the ways we know that is because he literally has Titus with him. Titus is a Greek. Titus is a Gentile. Now, you know, there's a book in the Bible called Titus, right? Y'all know that, right? Like, Titus is an important figure in church history, right? And, And so Titus... It is very clear to those when he goes back to Jerusalem that Titus is a believer, that Titus truly believes, that Titus truly has the Holy Spirit in his heart and in his life. And so Paul knows. He knows what's happened to him. He knows what he's seen. And so he goes back to Jerusalem, and there who he finds is is he has those private conversations with the ones that he knew he needed to deal with privately, and then he deals publicly with it as well. And ultimately what takes place is, is that everyone concludes that the gospel can go to the Gentiles. We find at the end of that that what they do is they look at, at, at Paul and they, they give Paul and Titus and Barnabas the, the right hand of fellowship. They said, hey, you're correct. You can go back and read Acts chapter 15 and you read the entire account that Paul summarizes here in Galatians chapter 2. And so ultimately what Paul is telling the folks in Galatia is this. Peter was there. James was there. John was there. Barnabas was there. Titus was there. Paul was there. Can you imagine having been at the council at Jerusalem while they're debating one of the first major theological issues that the church had to come to terms with and grips with? Like, this was one of the first ones. Y'all understand that, right? It was, it was is the gospel for everyone? That's really what it was. Hmm. It's amazing that in some circles, some 2,000 years later, people are still asking that question. We'll let that one hit where it needs to hit. They were literally answering the question, is the gospel for everyone? That's what they were answering. You hear me? And guess what we find? The Jews looked at the Gentiles and said, yes, the gospel is for everyone. Titus is the test subject here. He's a Greek. He's a Gentile. He came to faith in Jesus Christ. There's proof in how he's living. There's proof in the Holy Spirit. And so ultimately the gospel also can go to the Gentiles. Now, why in the world is Paul pointing this out? Because remember, chapter 1, if you were here a few weeks ago, if you weren't here a few weeks ago, remember, Paul tells them that what they had done with the gospel is that they had twisted it, right? He said they had distorted it because they had been influenced by Judaizers that had came in and taught them a legalism that said, if you're going to be a Christian, you must also follow these extra set of laws as well. And what Paul is telling the church at Galatia is this. It is already decided. Now I want you to hear me very clearly tonight. Just because something is already decided by God doesn't mean that people get in line with what is already decided by God. Just because God's word, the scripture, his holy word, the Bible, tells us specific things about our life, gives us direction for how to live, and tells us about the only way to salvation, doesn't mean that everybody that even proclaims to be a Christian is going to get in line with what God has already decided. And I can guarantee you that the culture that we live in is not going to get in line with what God has already decided. But I also can promise you this. If God has already decided it, it's not going to change. It's not going to change. We can't just decide that we feel a different way and make up something else. So Paul is telling the church at Galatia, it doesn't matter what these false teachers have told you. It doesn't matter what these Judaizers have told you. God's already said it. And if you want proof of it because you're worried about what other people are saying, hey, guess what? I was in a room. I was in the room where it happened since Hamilton's down in Atlanta now, right? And guess what? James was there and John was there and Peter was there and Paul was there and Barnabas was there and Titus was there. Here we are just some two decades or so after Jesus's death and already the quote unquote biggest names in church history were in one room discussing this issue and they all agreed the same thing. They all agreed the same thing. That's the is for everyone. It was to the Jew and the Gentile. It's what they believed. It's what they believed. I had a seminary professor tell me that one of the most dangerous things that you can do when you're going into ministry, when you're writing sermons, when you're uh, dealing with Scripture, uh, when you're doing this big word they call hermeneutics, he said is this. Decide that what church history has decided for the last 2,000 years is wrong. If for 2,000 years... The top theologians, the top preachers, the top Bible scholars have said something is true. Guess what? It's kind of dangerous to be like, hey, actually, I found something they didn't catch. Does that make sense? Kind of dangerous. And Paul's looking at the church at Galatia, churches in Galatia, because like we said, there's multiples of them. And he's telling them, guys, this is already decided. It doesn't matter what these other people are coming in. Matter of fact, if you want to compare people, the folks in my room where it was decided, he says it doesn't matter who they are, but for those in Galatia, he's pointing out, but we know who they are, right? So we see the council at Jerusalem where Paul had to fight the fight. But then secondly, I call this next one the cool kids and Peter. The cool kids in Peter. Let's continue reading there in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Cephas is Peter, by the way. All right? I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. It's kind of funny in this passage here. uh, Paul is um, calling him Cephas um, in the midst of talking about what he did wrong. um, Because Jesus had called him Peter, the one that he would... the, The rock, right? And so, anyways... For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in the hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, How is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Okay. So here's what happens. Acts chapter 15. Actually, let's go back even further. Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is up on a roof. Y'all remember this story? And Peter has a vision. And it says that this sheet comes down from heaven. Do Y'all remember what happens when that sheet comes down from heaven? Anybody remember? Right? Peter is like, he's told, hey, do what? Eat this stuff, this this food that's unclean. Remember that? And Peter says, I can't do it. And then what does God say to Peter? Don't call unclean that which I have cleansed. And then he sends Peter to this guy named Cornelius' house. Cornelius is a Gentile. Matter of fact, he's not just any Gentile. He's a Roman centurion. He's a Roman soldier. So, Peter, who was a Jew, right, one of the followers of Jesus, has this vision in Acts chapter 10 where he's told clearly that the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. Remember, it's the Jews who literally called the Gentiles dogs. Y'all realize that, right? Like, you talk about racism. There was crazy racism amongst Jews toward Gentiles. Crazy, crazy, crazy amounts. And so here, what we find is, is that ultimately, Peter is told, hey, don't you call unclean that which I've called clean. And he goes to Cornelius' house, and the Bible tells us that Cornelius comes to know Christ as Lord and Savior, and and his family, his household, comes to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, fast forward to Acts chapter 15. And in Acts chapter 15, we just read about what happens because who was at the council at Jerusalem? Who? Peter. Now, here we find ourselves though, after Peter's literally had a vision from God telling him that the gospel was to be sent to the Gentiles, he's literally been in the presence of Titus. And James and John, James, by the way, is the half-brother of Jesus, who is the head of the church in Jerusalem, okay? And and, and then we find him in the room where it happened, literally with those six guys who we read about, who were pillars in the beginning of the church, where they said, no, the gospel is for the Gentiles. Paul, you're right, y'all keep doing what you're doing. And Paul says to the churches in Galatia, But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. What changed? Well, here's what changed. Peter is in Antioch and Peter is living and dining with the Gentiles. Remember back in the day, if you were to eat with the Gentiles, man, that's a big deal. Remember what they accused Jesus of doing? They accused Jesus of eating with sinners. Y'all remember that? Right? That was one of the things they accused him of doing. Because Jesus would eat with Matthew and his tax collector buddies, right? Right? And Jesus would eat with the sinners, right? And so ultimately what we find ourselves here is that Peter is is, uh, responding to, to what he's supposed to be doing, which is sharing the gospel with the Gentiles in Antioch. And he's even accepted them so much to the point that he's willing to dine with them and eat with them. But yet Paul says that some men from James show up. If they're from James, where was James the head of the church at? What city? Jerusalem, right? So some guys from Jerusalem show up. Trying to think how we could compare this. Y'all just throw a name out. We'll go with whatever name you call out. Who's your favorite preacher in the world? Just throw a name out. Everybody can say it together so you're not embarrassed about whose name you say. One, two, three. Favorite preacher. Don't say Tommy. Favorite preacher in the world. Don't say Michael Fry. He's here too. All right. One, two, three. Go. Okay. So whoever you just said some like this side spoke, y'all were quiet. It's like all the extroverts and all the introverts or something, right? All right, listen. Listen. H- hear me. Imagine if like the inner posse of that dude showed up while you were like sitting at a dining table. And you're sitting there and imagine that you're sharing with your friends who have never been in church before in their life, they don't even know who Jesus is, and you're sharing with these friends about who Jesus is, and imagine that your favorite preacher in the world, you see like their entourage walk in. Imagine that if in that moment what you did is you said, hey guys, hey let's, let's stop this conversation for a second. And you walked over there and you're like, hey man, I can't believe, hey, hey how cool is it to be on staff with him? Hey, tell me about you punk what are you doing right you literally just left your lost friends who you were sharing the gospel with who you were trying to tell about jesus to go hang out with these cool kids over here that's what you literally just did that's what peter did peter's hanging out with the gentiles he's eating dinner with them and then the guys from jerusalem comes back and peter's like man i used to live over there oh man that's some of james's guys oh man hey guys peace out i'm over here that's what he did so paul gets to antioch and paul's like peter what are you doing what are you doing so he calls peter out on it and it's easy to read this and it's easy to say listen man peter lost his mind for a second it's easy to say that but let's think about it for just a second how much do we love acceptance and how much do we love to be liked? And how much do we love to sit at the cool kids table? Be honest about it. I know guys in ministry that honestly completely missed the boat on who they are and their effectiveness in ministry because instead of just embracing who they are, they've desired so bad to be at the cool kids' table that they've lost all authenticity of the fact that they're just a lovable dork. And if they'd have just been a lovable dork, everybody would have listened to everything they had to say because they were so authentic and they were so real and people would have known that, man, everything they said came from their heart. And they blew it because they left this because of their need for acceptance and their need for being liked and their need for being at the cool kids' table. what peter did what peter did and see here's the deal i mean you see the first point up there right can't we all fall and be influenced by outside pressures especially the pressure of acceptance can't we don't you think that peter knew that some of those guys in jerusalem that had showed up in antioch still had a little bit of distaste for the gentiles don't you think that peter knew that Don't you think Peter probably remembered the conversations that had happened at the council of Jerusalem? Because while we know those six in particular agreed and they gave the handshake of fellowship, the fact that there was even a conversation to begin with about whether the gospel was for everyone, like, that had to stick in Peter's mind. It had to. And so here Peter is, And Peter is in this situation where he's got a decision to make, and what he does is he's influenced by the men from James, and he compromises what he knows to be true. And here's the problem with that. The problem is is that the Jews would have said, don't have anything to do with the Gentiles. The gospel's not for the Gentiles. And in that moment where Peter had the ability to stand, the same way that Paul had stood at the Council of Jerusalem, what Peter did, is Peter said, I can't do it. Because I'd rather make sure that these guys that come from the biggest church in town, with the head pastor in town, like me. I'm going to leave all these guys alone. Paul says, Peter, what are you doing? Paul says, look what he says in verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in the presence of all. So it's not just that these Jews joined him, but it's that he, influ- or that he joined the Jews, but it's that he influenced others. It says the rest of the Jews in the room joined him in the hypocrisy Including Barnabas. And he says in verse 14, I said to Peter in the presence of all, If you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? So somewhere in this conversation, it's not just that Peter said, I'm going to quit eating with the Gentiles. But it's that in those moments, he began to sit over here and they began to have conversations and Peter began to say, yeah, you know, yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. And it says it was to such a point that Barnabas, what do we know about Barnabas? You know what we know about Barnabas? Barnabas is the guy, this is what's so amazing to this story about me or to, the sto- to, to me about this story. One of those, yeah, y'all got what I mean, right? Here's what's so amazing to me about this story. When Paul had his Damascus Road experience and he went from persecuting Christians to preaching the gospel. Y'all remember that? And, and, And Paul doesn't really have any idea what he's supposed to be doing. And at that point in his ministry and in his life, Like, he just knows that this crazy change has happened and that he's going to preach the gospel, but there's still a lot of people that are scared of Paul. There's still a lot of people that don't know if Paul's the real deal. Guess who the guy was that came about and encouraged Paul? It was Barnabas. Barnabas is literally known as the encourager. So here's the guy that saw the difference in Paul. Here's the guy that saw that literally a murderer could come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. But yet in this moment, he gets caught up in the the winds of the culture and the time and the place and and Peter and these cool kids at the cool kids' table. So much to the point that Barnabas, who knew that a murderer could come to know Jesus, forgot that a Gentile could come to know Jesus. We all like to be liked and accepted. And if our desire to be liked, accepted, cool, influences us in such a way that we fail to live out the gospel, that we fail to do what God has called us to do, unfortunately, the truth of the matter is, is that that usually influences others around us as well. What happens? It influences others around us as well. And I'll add this. Somewhere along the way, these guys forgot that the gospel, the fact that Jesus died for all, tears down the divisions of the flesh. If you want to go to a place in Scripture where you find that racism at its root is a heart issue and a sin issue and it's a result of our fallenness, man, this is a great place to go. Because here you had Peter who had finally gotten it right and then is influenced by a group of, some would say, just racist idiots. That's literally what's at the heart of this. It's Jews versus Gentiles. That's at at the heart of it. And at the heart of the gospel is that Jesus died for all people. And if Jesus died for all people, what happens is when we come to know Christ as Lord and Savior, we become brothers and sisters in Christ. And Peter leaves the table of his brothers and sisters in Christ to go sit at the table of those who were distorting the gospel. Because they couldn't get over the fact that they were Jews and the other guys were Gentiles. And they forgot that the gospel removes those fleshly divisions. And not only did Peter fall to that, but he literally influenced the guy whose nickname in the Bible is encourager to fall to that. So before we get on our high horse and say that would never happen to us, we never leave the table of our lost friends to go hang out with the cool pastor's entourage like Ryan or Tyler did, right? <laughs> we would never do that. We would never fall into that trap of falling back into some dumb comment, some dumb joke that highlights fleshly divisions. We never do that. Peter, Peter, Barnabas did it. And in that moment, Paul said, no, I'm here to fight for freedom. I'm here to fight for freedom. I did it in Jerusalem, and now I'm going to do it again. I want you to hear me. What that tells us is this is that not only is it our responsibility to not blow it like Peter did, but it's also our responsibility when a brother or sister in Christ does blow it to hold them accountable. To hold them accountable. We see the council of Jerusalem. We see the cool kids in Peter. And then here's what we ultimately see. We see the crucifixion of a Christian. Paul takes this practical situation and he turns it. And in verse 15 through verse 21, he does such a good job of this that most biblical scholars argue over whether Paul was actually still telling what he said to Peter or whether or not he had just said what he did to Peter and then flipped it to the Galatians and went, oh, and by the way. Like they literally argue over whether what he said to Peter stopped in verse 14 or goes all the way to verse 21. Because Paul, man, he's like... This is what happened at the Council of Jerusalem. And this is what happened with Peter and Antioch when he acted like an idiot. And in the process of that, oh, by the way, by the way. He says, we're Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So this is what he said there. He says, we're Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. So ultimately what it's saying is, yeah, we're Jews by nature, but hey, you know what? We're we're all sinners, us and the Gentiles. And we know that a man's not justified by works of the law, but we're justified by what? Through faith in Jesus Christ, he says. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ. Not by the works of the law. He says, guys, listen, the reason that what Peter did was messed up, the reason that the council at Jerusalem got it right, is because we are not justified by what we do. We are not justified by the law. We are not justified by the works of the law. And so he says, if we know this, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners. Is Christ then a minister of the sin? He goes. Oh, by the way, I know some of you out there right now are going to say, "Well, whoa, well, Paul, is what you're saying is that we're justified by faith and not by the law. So that means that what you're saying is, is that we can go sin? Does that mean that we're actually teaching that what we should do is be a minister of sin? Paul, are you trying to get everybody to just sin so we can point out God's grace? Is that what you're doing? And Paul says, may it never be. For if I rebuild what, what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He said, that doesn't make any sense at all. Why would I do that? That would be rebuilding what I destroyed. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And then Paul says this. He says, here's what a Christian does. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ that lives in, lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loves me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Paul looks at them and says, here's the deal. You know why I'm so big on the fact that these Judaizers are wrong? You know why I pointed out what Peter did? You know why I went back to Jerusalem and I got in that room with those guys and we discussed this issue? Because we're saved by grace through faith. Because our salvation is based upon nothing we do but upon everything that Christ did for us. And Paul says our response to that is not a response Of now I can do whatever I want to do. But Paul says our response to that is dying to ourself. Paul says our response to that is literally what baptism is symbolic of. When someone comes to know Christ as Lord and Savior, and they follow through in believer's baptism after that, does baptism save them? Absolutely not. But what does it tell the world? It tells the world that that person is being crucified with Christ. Right? That they are saying, I'm dying to my flesh. And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. That's what we're saying when we're baptized. Is it not? Paul says, that's how you live as a Christian. Not according to the law. Not according to some set of rules or some set of standards. Because those aren't enough. Hey, how many of you were here last year when we went through the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew? Do any of y'all remember that? Remember what I said about the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew? Remember when I told you guys that we completely misapply that all the time in church life and in Bible studies? Because what we do is we take the Sermon on the Mount and we create it as some sort of list of how we're supposed to live as a Christian. Remember when I told you guys that, that we were here last year? And I said, but if you read the Sermon on the Mount, what you actually find out is that what Jesus is doing there is he is creating a standard that is so high that none of us can reach. Remember that? It is the perfect standard. See, what the law does for us is the law simply shows us that there is a standard that none of us can reach. But yet, what did we say out of the Sermon on the Mount? Ultimately, who must we trust in? Christ. Christ. As the song says, in Christ alone my hope is found. Right? Right? It is He who has saved us. It is He who died for us. And when we put our faith and trust in Him, that vision and that image of being crucified to ourselves and to our flesh says that what we are admitting is this. I'm not good enough. I can't do it. I can't fulfill the law. I can't be what the standard is. Because I will never be good enough, so I must die to myself. And fully surrender to you. That's what we must do. Oh, and by the way, Paul makes mention of the fact that guess what? If Jesus' death wasn't enough, it's what he finishes with. If we still had to try to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and do it ourselves, if us dying to self and surrendering to Christ wasn't enough, literally, Paul says that Jesus' death was a waste. It was needless, and it was worthless. It's what he says. what he says. So where does that leave us tonight? Here's where it leaves us tonight. Number one, have you truly been crucified with Christ? Have you truly put yourself and your flesh to death and surrendered your life to live for Christ? If you're in this room tonight and you can't point back to a time in your life where you truly made a decision to say, Christ, I know I can't do it on my own and I know you died for me and so I surrender my life to you. You need to do that tonight. You need to do that tonight. Listen, I hear it all the time. There are students on this campus who say, man, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ. And then when you begin to ask them about when they became a Christian, or you begin to ask them about their faith in Jesus Christ, what they will do is they'll tell you about how they grew up in church. What they will do is they'll tell you about how their Bible study time or their devotional time has gotten better. What they'll tell you about is how that they really begin to understand how to study the Word. What they'll tell you about is how they started to grow closer to Jesus. And when they say grow closer to Jesus, what they usually mean is they started becoming more disciplined in their walk with Jesus. I want you to hear me tonight, and I want you to hear me clearly. I don't care how disciplined you are in your walk with Jesus. That is not what saves you and me. I believe wholeheartedly that there are a lot of people who grow up in church, who do the church thing. And then even somewhere around 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, they get in an academic setting like this where they got to study everything else as well. And they get around a lot of small groups who really seem to love each other and really seem to love Jesus. And they're like, man, ooh, this is what I need to do. And so they open their Bible up more often on a Monday morning and a Tuesday morning and a Wednesday morning. And they even say some prayers. And maybe even they have a little prayer notebook. and they go to a gathering and they're in a small group but they've never done the one thing that we must do to know Christ they never died to self and surrendered to Him never did never did they put on a pretty uniform I'm coaching middle school baseball you guys, some of you know that The guy I coached with, one of the guys I coached with said, we're wearing uniforms, coach. I said, no, we're not. He goes, yes, we are. I went to Academy, and I bought me a pair of baseball pants. When I coached high school ball, the high school gave me some baseball pants, and I wore a uniform. That was a long time ago. I needed white ones because we told the kids they had to wear white ones. You know what's going to happen? I'm going to walk out there on Thursday in a uniform with a blue jersey on that says Coney County on it and some white baseball pants and a hat on and I'm going to look like a 42 year old fool who thinks he can still play the game. And I'm not a player anymore. And that's what so many of us do. That's what so many of us do. So if you're in this room tonight more important than anything else we've said is this. If you can, I'm serious, guys. I think this is one of the biggest dangers of college ministry is we mess this up all the time because we emphasize this idea of discipleship so much and small times or our small group times so much and our quiet time with Jesus so much that we forget that that only matters if you're His to begin with. And how do you become His? Through faith in what he did on the cross of Calvary. And by being crucified with him. Saying, my flesh will never be enough. And saying, God, I surrender wholeheartedly to you. Now, if you do that, it will result in all that other stuff. But if you just start doing all that other stuff and you've never had a moment where you've surrendered to him. The world can think you're a real good Christian you can still split hell wide open. So, if you're in here tonight and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you would like to know more about us, visit our Instagram at UGABCM or visit us on our website at UGABCM.org. We hope you enjoyed and we'll see you next time.